Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. The goal is to be happier. More than 10%. Maybe even 12. Or 100% happy. Yeah. See, today, I love the man I am. And I am a freaking mess. (laughs) (laughs) From ABC... This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. So my guest this week is is a, a dude known uh, sometimes as the CEO Whisperer. He's a one-on-one coach for people who run some of the most dynamic and interesting startup companies and even larger in the country. And um, he's, of course, got his own business background that is really interesting and also kind of tumultuous. Uh, Jerry Colonna is, uh, in business circles, a legend, uh, and he also has a longstanding uh, meditation practice, which infuses in many significant ways uh, his work with these CEOs. So, ladies and gentlemen, here's Jerry Colonna. I'll just start with the the question I always start with, which is, how how did you start meditating? So, my gateway drug? Yeah. Pema Chodron. Let me just jump in and explain. Pema Chodron, a very quite famous Buddhist nun and author. Uh, um, her books include uh, When Things Fall Apart. That's one of her best-selling books. Right. So you found one of her books or you met well, her Well, what somewhere? happened was um, in February 2002, I had left my previous venture firm in the actually September 10th, 2001. Oh. Agreed to join Jeffrey Walker. At J.P. Morgan. So well, uh, let me explain who Jeffrey, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Walker is a, a, a big venture figure and um, also uh, very involved in the mindfulness world now. Right. Um, At the time, he was vice chairman of the bank. Yeah. Oh, okay. And he headed up a private equity firm, mm-hmm. and they had been investors in our fund. I started officially in 2002, January 2002. That fall, if you remember this New York history, right? Um, uh, Dan Doctoroff was deputy mayor for, uh, well, Dan Doctoroff was running the New York City Olympic bid effort. And then Mike Bloomberg won the election. Dan got tapped to head first transition committee and then became deputy mayor. And Dan asked me to step and be co-chair of the NYC 2012 Olympic Committee. This is relevant to to the the point I'm going to make. Fast forward February 2nd, 2002. I leave the offices of NYC 2012, which was in free office space downtown. It was free because nobody wanted to be downtown. At which point, nobody, nobody wanted. I'm walking past the pile. It's smoldering, and I want to kill myself. My depression, which goes back to my childhood, had been building and building and building and building. I had been with Fred, one of the lead venture investors here in the city. Fred Wilson. Yeah. Fred Wilson. And my heart was broken. And heart I, was broken by 9-11. No, my heart was broken because my world was falling apart. And I was 38. And I was miserable. And everybody thought I was successful. And I was hollow inside. Sound familiar, Dan? (laughs) Okay. And all of it was catching up with me. 
My therapist at the time said, I went to her and I said, put me in a hospital, I'm done. And she said, what do you want to go to a hospital for? You're rich. Go to Canyon Ranch. You'll get a massage every day. So I flew down to Canyon Ranch and my sister- Which is where? In Arizona. Okay. Spa, fancy spa. Fancy spa. And my sister Anne gave me a book. She gave me two books. And I took a third with me. She gave me Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer. When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. And Faith by Sharon Salzberg. And I read those books and cried through every page. I Okay. You, that, I have a million questions. Let me just get back to mm-hmm. the day in February where you're walking by the pile, which mm-hmm. for those of us who, for anybody who probably wasn't in New York at that time, and I remember the pile was the debris left behind by the crumpled World Trade Center towers. And um, it smoldered for a long time. Um you said I wanted to kill myself. Now, that was not a figure of speech. Correct. This was true suicidal ideation. This was, I am going to jump in front of a train. I am done. What was going on? Um, my relationship with depression goes back to childhood. Um, it's been a dance. As Churchill called it, the black dog. The black dog would often visit me. I had been in therapy on and off from teenage years, and I went back in at 30. And so at this point, it's about 38, about eight years later. And the best way I can describe it now, I think this will have some resonance with you, is that the inner me didn't match the outer me. Mm Mm-hmm. And a prolonged state in which the inner and the outer are in conflict with one another gives rise not only to things like that imposter syndrome voice that says you're a piece of shit and no one's actually figured it out and wait until they figure it out. Your life is going to fall apart. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Of course. Right? And the more success you have, the louder that voice gets. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you live in this funny state where everybody says, look at you, you did it. I remember in the months afterwards, so I you know, I went down to Canyon Ranch and I began working on this. And it's like, I, I think of that date as the sort of nadir moment and really climbing out from that point. And I remember later on reading a quote attributed to Buzz Aldrin, who suffered a massive depression after uh, becoming the second man to step on the surface of the moon. And he said something to the effect of, when, you see, when you've seen the earth from the vantage point of the moon, what else is there? Mm. Yeah. And I remember going, F- that's that's it. It's like, I'd spent my 20s trying to chase, to run away from my childhood. And I spent my 30s constructing what I thought was the ideal life for myself. And the whispering voices just said, enough. You're done. 
Can you tell me a little bit about the childhood you were trying to run away from? Sure. Um, a mother uh, who suffered from what's called schizoid affective disorder bipolarity, bipolar. And my father was alcoholic and fairly violent childhood. Um, one of six, one of seven kids, I'm number six. Um, a sense of fear uh, growing up in, a, in Brooklyn, um, being uh, fairly regularly threatened as you walk down the street, um, being in the midst of this kind of um, urban upheaval that was going on in the 1960s and 1970s in New York. Um, I think of myself and my family as um, not quite the same victims as, say, African Americans were uh, redlining and blockbusting. Remember these terms? Mm -hmm. Redlining where you couldn't get a mortgage if you were African American. And, and the negative implications of that kind of a construct going on. Um, but, but the tensions that existed led to this kind of existence where I just walked on the street and I was in fear all the mm. time. Were you in fear in the home too? Oh, sure. All the time. So it's a testament to you that you were able to become so successful in your 20s and 30s, although you, obviously you paid a price for it. Right. Can you can you just describe a little when when people said to you, "Hey, look at you. You made it. You did it. You were successful." What what were they thinking of? What had you done that the outside world would have judged you to be such a big success? Well, <clears throat> I remember New York Magazine did a profile on my partner at the time, Fred Wilson and I with our first venture capital firm, Flatiron Partners. And they referred to us as princes of New York. And I remember, in fact, um, there was an estimate of our net worth, of our individual net worth. And it was wrong, but it didn't matter. I mean, think about what that. What was the estimate? $50 million. Which, in real dollars, <laughs> now, yeah. But, but it wasn't even close to that. It wasn't that high, but that didn't matter. See, you you live in New York. You know, we walk around and we're like looking at each other. How low should I bow to you? Well, how big is your bank account? Right, right. Right? On, on my way here, we pass some of the most expensive real estate in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? What, this is the world in which we live in. And, and everybody on the outside would be like, I mean- there was this moment in 2000 when the market crashed, when the NASDAQ crashed, and the dot-com bubble burst, right? And boy, don't we wish we'd bought Amazon then, right? Or Priceline, right? And as one friend put it in describing my experience, our experience, Fred and I, it, we went from the penthouse to the outhouse, right? I see you lost a lot of money during that period. Uh, not really. We lost status. Oh. And that added to the depression. Sure, because, again, I, you know, as I often say, I outsourced my 
internal sense of self-worth to external things. Right? A lot of us do that. Uh, a lot of us do that. Our economy depends upon it. <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Drive the right car, mm-hmm. and then you'll feel good. Mm-hmm. Right? And so I outsourced it to the most seductive thing possible, fame and affirmation. Mm-hmm. And when the worm turned, because the worm always turns, it hurt. Now, what it revealed was the hollowness of a sense of self independent of all of that. In other words, if you take away the scaffolding, uh, the prince of the city uh, moniker uh, bestowed upon you by some writer or headline writer at the New York mag, take away uh, the the bubble, the excitement, the irrational exuberance around the uh, dot com uh, uh, boom, the first one. There wasn't much there to Jerry himself. Well, what what the fear was, what got revealed was the shock from Brooklyn who mm. never really escaped. Right, right. You thought you escaped, but we dragged you right back. Of course, that's, you, that's were, what the you were still, by any measure, rich and successful. Yeah, but didn't feel right. it. Right, so it doesn't matter, actually, if you don't feel it. Doesn't matter if this you don't feel This is why I know it. so many unhappy, successful people. That's right. That's right. So, you're at Canyon Ranch, you're reading this book by Pema Chodron. Crying. Why were you crying when you read the book? Because it was so real and raw. What about it? What about, what was in the book that struck you so powerfully? That book in particular, it's the chapter called Hopelessness and Death. Fun reading. Fun reading. It's great to be a Buddhist. (laughs) (laughs) And just to be clear, at this point, you were not a Buddhist. No. No. I'm reading this thing, and I remember her teaching about the sense of hope for a better world being a seductive way in which we get drawn into this externalization, this outsourcing of happiness. Right. If only now just fill in the blank on that sentence. If only such and such happens, I will feel better. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're driven by these if only thoughts. If only. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it can be small. It's like, uh, you know, if only I could get to the bathroom and then I would be able to pay attention. Or if only I could get some lunch right now, then 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 everything will be humming along. I can learn how to meditate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then those are you. It goes up. It scales up all the way up to, you know, if I had enough money for a second home or if I or more importantly, if I just had more money than my neighbor or my brother-in-law, whatever. Yes. If only I had enough money to create an impenetrable wall of security mm-hmm. around me forever and ever so that nothing nothing could ever hurt me again. If only, I remember one time sitting with my therapist laying on a couch because of psychoanalysis. I'm still with her, by the way, 24 years later. Laying on the couch, and he said, at what point does it end? And I exasperated and said, as much money as Bill Gates. She's like, oh, really? <laughs> it's like, what the f*** am I doing? So she, you're reading this chapter, and, and all of a sudden your folly becomes clear? And I'm just sitting there going, oh. Well, it, was, it began a process. It began a process that, you know, 
and 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 I and I want to mention Parker Palmer's book as well because I've never is, heard of Parker Palmer. You have to actually get Parker on the show. Parker is a brilliant Quaker writer. I've actually had him on my show. Who, the reboot podcast. We the should reboot say, yeah. podcast. And he is um, seventy-seven, I think. Parker, how old are you? And I consider him one of my core teachers. Hmm. Uh, his first major work was something called The Courage to Teach. So he's known for his influence on education. But he's this um, beautiful man. Uh, right now he's very fashionable because uh, he has a book called Healing the Heart of Democracy. Separate topic. Anyway, in Let Your Life Speak. It was one of the first times I read something in which someone talked openly about their experience of being depressed. Mm. And I don't mean something like William Sterone's Darkness Visible or um, it was just it was it felt like just another regular broken hearted person. And it was that experience plus Pema's plus Sharon's work and the combination of those two. And then I go to Canyon Ranch and I'm sitting for the first time. Uh, they actually had you meditate there. They had me meditate. And it was a simple guided visualization meditation that again, I ended up in tears. And I remember calling my sister Anne, who had given me those books, from there. And Anne was always the kind of slightly weird one in the family because <laughs> she would like do things like yoga. And I just remember crying to her and saying, I'm so sorry, I would make fun of you. You were right. I'm a jerk. Because I would devalue any experience below the neck. You know? Mm-hmm. And I was just like treating my body like a meat bag to just carry around the real me, right? All those feelings, stuff them down. All that experience, all the somatic experience, stuff it down. All of the sensory, sensory experience, ignore it. Because it was all in service to this construct of the mind and the ego. Indigo girls in... Uh, I think it's closer to fine, have a wonderful line where I think myself into a bag, right? I think that I'm going to somehow figure out how to get out of it. And I think what happened to me beginning that February day and then over the next year, two years, I often think back to the Buddha and the story of the Buddha where, you know, the story, right? He grows up as a prince he spies out the window for the first time an old woman. He, in a flash, understands birth, old age, sickness, and death. He leaves his confines. He experiences the world. He becomes a student of these great teachers, but soon he outdoes them. And the way I think of him is like from Brooklyn where he just says, fuck it. It's not working. Like, all of these methodologies, they're not, I'm just going to sit under this tree until I figure it out or I'll die. And that's what I feel like I was at. Like nothing worked anymore. Not the falsity, not the personas, not money, nothing worked. And it was like my life reached up from inside my heart and grabbed me by the throat and said, now are you going to pay attention? <laughs> Okay, so I'm now find myself at a juncture with a mil another set of one million questions. Uh, mm -hmm. So I have to make a decision about where I want to go. Um, 
let me stay on meditation for a second. What mm-hmm. was it about meditation that was therapeutic for you at this rather desperate juncture? It sounds like it was a combination of the practice and the theory that you were getting in the books. But yeah, it was I'll the let theory in the books. It was the theory in the books first. And um, so I'll fast forward a year later. I now have a chance to meet Pema. And it was a great moment. She's doing a teaching at um, Cooper Union. Downtown New York City. Downtown New York City. And it's to raise money for a local Buddhist um, training center, the Shambhala New York Center. And a friend sends me a note and says, hey, I know you're interested in Pema. She's coming to town this, you know, this weekend. And by the, at this point, you're still, you're still in venture capital at this point? I'm still in venture capital, although I had made the decision to leave J.P. Morgan. I didn't know what I was going to do. But I knew that I was not renewing my contract at the end of 2002. So I literally walked away from everything. And I had no job for the first time since I was 13. You were about to walk away from everything at this point. Well, by the time it's a, now a year yeah, later, I so see. February twenty, so at the end of two thousand two, I left J.P. Morgan. It's February two thousand three. I got no job, but I'm okay. I just have no identity. I have no business card. Right, 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 right. So I'm going to this uh, weekend, and then just before they send a note to all the, hey, there's a fundraiser on Friday night at Lou Reed and Lori Anderson's apartment. Okay, so hey, that's kind of cool. So I go to this place, and little did I know that it was like the cognoscenti of the whole Buddhist mafia in New York. It's like everybody who's anybody was there. Like they're all walking around and all this stuff. And in walks this little nun, Pema, Ani Pema, and she toddles up to these cushions, and we all sit down like good little children, and she starts teaching. She starts teaching on the nature of impermanence. Right? All things fall apart all the time. The fact that we're striving to maintain structure and permanence actually increases our suffering, our dukkha. Dukkha but just uh, yeah. is the ancient Indian word for suffering. A word that's often, it's a, some people say suffering is a mistranslation of dukkha. Dukkha could also be translated as just unsatisfactoriness. Yeah. That if you try to cling to things that will not last you will suffer. Yeah. And for me, it, it, it evokes the suffering that we actually create ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's not the suffering of a broken arm. It's the suffering of my life is supposed to be this way. What's wrong with me that my life isn't this way? Well, and also can be it's the, uh, the uh, uh, it is often said by Buddhists that pain mm. is inevitable, like you will break your arm at some point. Mm-hmm. Suffering is optional. Exactly. And so it's, uh, or, or the yeah. better, the one analogy I love from the Buddhist yeah. scripture is the analogy of the second arrow. The Buddha That's talks right. about being, you're walking through the woods, so you get hit by an arrow, and you're and that hurts, like just in and of itself, it hurts. But the second arrow is, why am I always the guy who gets hit by an arrow? Who did this to me? Um, and um, what's wrong with them? Yes, and, exactly. And what did I do? And, right, and it's all of that nonsense. That's the second arrow that right. we put in voluntarily. Right. right. So, so in, as it relates to impermanence, all things fall apart all the time. Mm-hmm. All things. Things fall apart when things fall apart, including our sense of self. Okay, so we're sitting there and we're doing exactly what, uh, what's happening to me is what's happening with you and I right now. Right. And this this is a classic Buddhist teacher trick. So she's sitting there and she says, Okay, so now some of you are sitting here thinking, I've got this one. 
I've figured it out. Now you've just slipped permanent ground underneath a concept that itself is always falling apart. And I blurt out, that's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) And she looks at me, she goes, Catholic, right? (laughs) So later we have this sort of one-on-one moment and she says, you're always trying to figure out what the answer is, aren't you? You're always trying to get it right. When did... When do you stop trying to get the A in the classroom? And I'm just like, it's like a classic Buddhist teacher who just like sliced me open, takes out my organs, looks at them and goes, look at you. (laughs) (laughs) She taps me on the hand and she says, honey, you think you're open. You haven't even begun to open. Just keep opening. And to this day, now it's, what, 14 years later? That's, that's it. Just keep opening to the experiences as they are. So to get a little granular with us about your meditation practice then and as it's changed up until now, what, what do you do in your mind when you're meditating? Or what, were you, what was the technique you were taught and are you still doing it? Sounds like you entered into the Shambhala system. Under I did. Her. I okay. entered, entered the Shambhala system. She's which a is, she's part of this Shambhala lineage. That, that's right. And and uh, my first teachers were um, from that tradition. Even though I never met him, um, I would consider Trungpa Rinpoche one of my teachers. He was her teacher. He was her teacher. Trogyam uh, Trungpa Rinpoche, pretty controversial dude. We we don't have to dive into uh, that. Kind of a wacky yeah, dude. Yeah. Yes. 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 Absolutely. And his son, and that whole tradition, which is in which is a powerful tradition. Today, though, I consider Sharon, one, Sharon Salzberg, one of my teachers, who's from the Insight Meditation tradition. I consider Roshi Joan Halifax a teacher. She's from the Zen, Zen tradition. Yeah, yeah, you are an ecumenical guy. Because wisdom traditions are powerful traditions, and I will avail myself by any means necessary of alleviating suffering. Yeah, you, you want to deal with that black dog with as many uh, tools as are available. I want my allies. Yeah. No, smart. Smart. So so my practice is, for the most part, a daily practice, although lately it's been a, a harder time uh, for me to hold it. Um, oh, so so uh, you haven't been able to keep up the dailiness recently? Not in the last two or three months. Interesting. What What's getting in the way? Travel, holidays. Can't you do it on the plane? Sure, of course you can. And? <laughs> but here's the difference. And, and this, this is really the point. When I sat down, I'm saying, saying this to your partner, Ben Rubin. Ben um, Rubin is the CEO of the 10% Happier app. Yes. Right. So, so when I f- sat down in New York for a meditation instruction, um, the teacher gave us this guidance, and we all sat for five minutes. And at the end of five minutes, they said... So who here in the room is striving to get an A and be a really good meditator in the room? And of course, my hand went up, right? Mine would have gone up too, just so you know. Yeah, but I would have been better than you. Well, no question. No question. (laughs) I am a killer meditator. (laughs) (laughs) I have kind of released myself from that. I mean, that's amazing. That's the game I'm working on. 
And it's a hard game. It took me probably five, six, seven, eight years to just like, oh, wait, 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 wait. The goal is not to get meditation right. The goal is not to turn meditation into yet another form of self-recrimination and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm self-punishment. Or self-aggrandizement. Or self-aggrandizement. Look at how proud I am. Look at Mm -hmm. how good I am. Mm -hmm. The goal is to be happier. More than 10%. Maybe even 12. Or 100% happy. Yeah. See, today, I love the man I am. And I am a freaking mess. (laughs) And I can self-regulate. We need to put that on a quote card. That's a great quote. <laughs> that's going up on that's going up on my social well, media. Well, you know feed. what I say? You know the whole Namaste thing, right? So yeah. Namaste, the God, the, the bow to in the me. light in you. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the mess in me bows to the mess in you, because there is no difference between the mess and the light. Okay, why was the Buddha called Lotus Born? You know this? No. How is a lotus? Where oh, are the yeah, the lotus, lotus comes out of the dung at the bottom. Out of the yeah. crap yeah, yeah. and the muck. Yeah. Even the notion that the crap and the muck is something not to be loved. So I'm a mess. There's uh, another phrase that I like from Buddhist teachings that uh, all the stuff that we're actually often struggling against in our meditation, uh, it's often referred to as manure for enlightenment. Oh, yeah. It's like... I was struggling. My mom passed away in September. Oh, I'm sorry. And, That's recent. Yeah. And uh, uh, it was a very complicated relationship. And uh, the holiday period, which has always been a, a historically difficult time period, was really sharp in its poignancy. Mm. I have three adult children, and they have the temerity of growing up and becoming independent adults. How dare they? And so there's the pain of transition and separation. And just, it's life. And it's hard. And I could sit in meditation and try to push all that away and, ah, mindfulness, stress reduction, bullshit. (laughs) Okay, watch, 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 watch the biofeedback thing go to green. All right, all that's important, blah, blah, blah. Or I can use the practice to sharpen the experience of being human. And so I sit. And sometimes I've been able to sit. And sometimes I haven't been able to sit. But hopefully the inner and the outer of me are more in alignment. Whether or not I've actually put my ass on a cushion. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. 
you will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it. But already, I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. When you sit, what do you do? What's the practice that you've been taught and that you... So I do... My basis is shamatha, breath awareness. The object of my meditation is my breath. Um, I will sit in a traditional uh, posture, my butt raised on a cushion. I will sit anywhere from five minutes to an hour. Kind of depends on how I'm doing. I sit in the same spot. This is really important because I'm a, a creature of habits. I sit in the morning, which is also really important. The space is sacred. I actually have a room at my home in Boulder that is my meditation room because intention is really powerful. I am going to meditate now. Okay, brain, got it. Mm-hmm. And then I sit. Now I will have a timer, um, and I have incense, and I have a candle, and it creates a sense of sacredness. I'm also a former Catholic, so I like funny smells, and <laughs> you know, I like I, I like I like Tibetan Buddhism because I like men in funny hats. I mean, I right, but all of that is form. It's all, it is not the point, right? Emptiness is form, form is ent- emptiness. It's from the Heart Sutra by the Buddha. But, but so actually you're making a good point because when you were talking about incense, yeah, all of, say, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a strong, pronounced, perhaps undying allergy to anything touchy-feely, smells and bells. I'm not Catholic, uh, grew up half Jewish, but both my parents are pretty ardent atheists. Um, as I like to say, my mom sat me down when I was eight and told me that not only is there no Santa Claus, but there's also no God. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the kind of mm-hmm. vibe in my house. Um, and I think a lot of folks who listen to this or like my book or whatever, they the, the whole idea that you would light incense or light a candle, it's like... Th- th- they feel like they have permission to meditate because I tell them you don't have to do that stuff. You don't have to do anything. Right. Of this but stuff. so I actually find it very interesting that, um, and, and a relief that, and I think people will too, that you're saying doing this stuff, you know, works for you, but it's not the point. No, my God. I mean, to, to presume that it's the point is as much an attachment as, you ready for this, buddy? Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop the Lay it on me. As much as presuming that it's wrong to do that. Absolutely. 
Neither Absolutely. one makes sense. No, They're both the dog. It's like I once had a teacher say to me, dog tied to stick. Dog runs to stick. Dog still tied to stick. Dog runs away from stick. Dog still tied to stick. The issue is the dog is tied to the stick. <laughs> right? It's not attachment. Detachment or revulsion, right? Can stand candles. Can't stand all that form. It's too religious for me. Well, that's interesting. That's an interesting state. That's a really powerful line of inquiry when one is sitting with open mind, beginner's mind, get curious. Yeah. You, I mean, four square in your camp on everything you've just said. I just that my inclination as a... Mm. I guess you could describe me. I sometimes describe myself tongue in cheek as an evangelist for mm. m- for for, for meditation. Non religious. No, just for meditation generally. I want people mm. to. I, I think the headline for me out of mm. all of my peregrinations through the worlds of neuroscience and meditation mm. and Buddhism is that the mind is trainable. Mm-hmm. You're not stuck with what you got, and so and our brains are plastic. Correct. So I want people to wake up to that core fact, and then what they do with that. God bless. Go do whatever you want. I agree with you. So, but I'm thinking, as w- to put it in business terms, top of funnel. You know, the, 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 I'm going after the hardest people to reach, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to, to the skeptics. That's mm-hmm. what I wrote my book for, and that's, mm-hmm. that's my message is tuned to those people. And so uh, I always get, somewhat by proxy, mm-hmm. nervous when people talk about incense and candles, but it's it is a little bit by proxy because personally I don't care if there's incense or candles in the room. But I'm in the tank already. It's as a as a evangelist that I get a little nervous because I know that people want to hear at least my my folks my tribe mm. wants to hear. You don't have to do that. Oh, if you use those things, at, if you use candles and incense to not work with your mind, it's called spiritual bypassing. I love that term. So you can get into the candles and the incense, but you're not doing anything. You're not doing anything. Except for maybe- uh, Smelling. Yeah, yeah, it's aromatherapy. Smelling patchouli. Yes. Right, right. All of that is nonsense. We can use anything to bypass the experience of being real in the moment. Anything. It's funny that you talked about being real in the moment. Uh, Now I'm just, this interview is just going off the rails. We're just- Who the hell cares? Nobody cares. Um, but I, I was doing this, uh, I was meditating recently, and, um, and I, I have my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, and um, who ironically has never been on the podcast, I have to, I have to fix that. But um, he has, I have three or four or five kind of different techniques I do based mm-hmm. on my t- uh, work with him. And Do you do a good job with him? No, I do a horrible job. <laughs> Terrible. I'm the worst. Um, and I was, I was kind of, at the beginning of a sit, sometimes I'll say, you know, what am I going to do now? And I said, you know what, today I'm just going to see what it's like to be me right now. Mm. And that was actually an interesting meditation. Mm. No uh, mm-hmm. no technique. Mm. And then you got to get lost. And then, and actually I found that the moment of recrimination, because I do have it, yeah. when I get lost and wake up again, this is usually tied to a, a whole boatload of, you know, you suck at this, you're an yeah. idiot, you're never going to be good, blah, 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 yeah. um, was actually less severe when I just sat and investigated what it was like to be awake and existing. Okay, in this so now I'm going to say something really dangerous. Go for it. That's going to go for like your like. That's really going to like. 
like activate your high achiever side. Okay. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> that is the most dangerous thing. You I know. <laughs> Nicely done. Here's your A. <laughs> but but the truth is, what you vividly experienced is you know you know th- th- this whole off the rails train part of the the conversation began with you saying asking me what do I do when I meditate? Yeah. Right. What I strive to do is what you just described. Just be. Right. And if candle and incense help you get get you there. That's right. Abs- go for it. That's right. Because, see, I don't sit on the meditation cushion so that my experience on the cushion is really cool. I sit on the cushion so that when I encounter the inevitable vagaries of day-to-day life, I'm that much more resilient. That's also a great quote. By the way, well, good, I'm, good, I'm good for them. Good for you. I'm good. That's dangerous. Uh, yes. They're right back at you, buddy. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'm much more interested in resiliency than I am actually even in happiness. Yeah. Because happiness is actually something that is much more fleeting. To, and to go back to your moment, so, so there you are sitting in meditation, and then you realize that you actually haven't, quote, been meditating. You've been, as one teacher said to me, wool gathering, Right. Now, you have, you have a choice in that moment. You have a choice. And how you choose to experience that moment is whether it's going to be just pain or suffering. Viktor Frankl said, between stimulus and response is a gap, and in that gap lies our choice and our freedom. How we interpret that moment. I'm sitting on the cushion. I have every intention. Jerry said it's okay to use incense. Dan has been saying, no, you don't have to. Okay, so here I am. And I realize 20 minutes later, I have been off the rails talking about blah, 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 blah Mm -hmm. in my own head. Mm -hmm. Now you have a choice. If you want to cultivate resilience, come back to the breath. Come back to the intention without judgment. That's the tricky part. Without judgment with loving kindness for yourself. Oh, there I did it again. Oh, boy. Guess I got to sit some more. Well, I I would add just one thing on top of that, Mm -hmm. which is because I've noticed that expecting the moment of waking up from distraction to be without judgment actually was a little too much for me because actually there's a reflexive judgment in that moment of, oh, you suck at this. Yeah, or, but, oh, you're good at it. Oh, or congratulations exactly. for a great meditation Exactly. Session. So what yeah. I've yeah. trained myself to do sometimes is, okay, I wake up from being distracted. Uh, involuntarily, there's a certain, there's a um, uh, self-flagellation there, like, uh, you're terrible at this. Then the mindfulness kicks in. Oh, I'm judging myself. Right. Now back to the breath. Now, now imagine taking that entire experience that you just described and taking it out throughout your day. Yeah, it would change your whole life. Right. I'm standing in line at Starbucks. I notice that I'm really pissed off at the person in front of me because, you know when they show up and they haven't actually figured out how they're going to pay yet? Mm-hmm. And then they get their order <laughs> and like, now you bring out your credit card. <laughs> okay, I got my credit card out when I'm out at the door. Right. Okay, who's the crazy one now? Okay. Who's contributing and feeding the wolf of my own suffering? Right? Wake up. Wake up. Wake up. 
I have a friend who's con- who, when he started down this path, would constantly ask the question, do you think this person is enlightened? I don't know about this. Do you think this person is enlightened? And finally, one day, I said to him, I don't give a f- about enlightenment. I care about not suffering. I just don't want to hurt anymore. And I don't want to hurt other people. Because when I hurt other people, I hurt. And when I hurt, other people are hurt. And I just don't want to hurt anymore. And every now and then, I hurt people still. Now, I had another friend once said to me, you Buddhists, you know, you're sitting there on the cushion. and What if everybody just sat there and, and I said, yeah, what if everybody just said, I don't want to hurt anybody anymore? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? I do. I do think it would be cool. Well, let me just go back to the Starbucks thing for a moment because, it, again, actually this is, this is a kind of interesting continuation of our discussion about the moment of waking up because I think we need to view the the – the moment of anger at at the person who doesn't know that you actually should pull your credit card out a few steps before the cashier as not something to be angry at yourself about. Right. To actually view that as like, I, I didn't curiosity. order that. I didn't ask for that. It just came. So you view it with curiosity with some, dare I say, use a little bit of a gooey word here, compassion. Mm. Um, and Humor. Yeah, humor. Absolutely. Look at how absolutely. nutty I am. Yes. I am still a jerk. I've been doing this meditation thing for many, many years, <laughs> and I'm still exactly, a jerk. Yeah. There you go. Namaste. The mess in me yes. honors the mess in me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right. So, so, so uh, now I'm going to attempt, and you can, you can. Um, yeah. uh, there will be no hard feelings if you um, uh, deflect my attempt to put the interview back on the rails slightly, sure. just because I'm curious. Um, what is your life like now? We heard all about, uh, you know, the the messiness leading up to the discovery of meditation and a little bit about your meditation practice. But your life is pretty different now than it was in 2002. Yeah, so here's a here's a vivid example of it, okay? In 2002, I weighed 250 pounds. Today- Really? Yeah, yeah, he's, he's surprised because I weigh 180. Today. Yeah, you're a thin guy. I'm a thin man, yeah. Um, I shed another human, is <laughs> what I did. Wow. <laughs> um, my, I live in Boulder. I'm a coach, primarily. A CEO coach? A CEO coach. I am called the CEO Whisperer. And uh, we have a company called Reboot, right? Which So the podcast is just part of the whole set of uh, services that we offer. But how is my life now? Um, I still struggle to make sure that the inner and the outer stay in alignment, I will often be caught by those who love me in those moments where it's not, and shame will arise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can usually find my balance again and regulate. Um, even in hard times, you know, this, this past holiday season, um, some, I was talking to someone and I, and they said, well, what's going on for you? And I said, I'm grieving. And they said, well, what, your mom? I said, time passing. 
It hurts. And then the solstice passed, which was the anniversary of my father's passing. My father passed 24 years ago. And then Christmas, and then New Year's. And the image I often think of is, there's, there's a story I heard when I was a boy that do you know why birds sing in the morning? It's because at night, when the sun goes down, they think that's it, life is over. And they start to sing because, hey, it's the sun. It's come back. (laughs) So January 1, sun came back. And I sit down and I talk to a client and I break out of my narcissistic bubble momentarily. And I am compassionate or empathetically there with someone who sits down across from me and they're 30 years old, and they're overwhelmed, and they're, they think they suck, and they think that those voices in their head, and I say, I get you. I understand. And I haven't fixed anything, but they walk away feeling a little bit lighter. And so I, I think today I'm the luckiest human being on the face of the damn planet because I get to have conversations like that all day long. How, do, how does your Buddhist practice impact your CEO whispering? And, In and are every so, way imaginable. Are there some, because you are, I'm interested in, in yeah. how it goes down, because you are unabashedly, and I think in a cool way, um, a little ooey-gooey. You know, you mm-hmm. light incense, and mm-hmm. you, you talk about the heart, mm-hmm. um, things that I... Uh, don't yet do. Um, uh, how does that go down with the CEO crowd? Because I would imagine some of these guys are and, and women are well, pretty hard charging. So one of the things we do is we do something called a boot camp. And uh, actually Sharon came to our last boot camp. And this is a four or five day multi-day experience and it's an immersive experience. And it was originally designed for CEOs then we expanded to co-founders and then we introduced investor boot camps, VC boot camps. Our next VC boot camp is actually next week. We originally designed it for slots of twenty of twelve people. We have twenty four people coming. Twenty four theoretically powerful people. Who, they're not coming to hear quote Jerry teach the Dharma. That's not what I'm there for. But what I try to do is I combine three overlapping circles. One is pragmatic practical experience in this whole realm of our relationship to work. Like, what's that like? What's it like to be a CEO? What's it like to be an investor? What's it like to be a board member, for example, and feel incredibly responsible for this organization, but be the least informed person in the room? (laughs) Try to manage your anxiety there. Yeah. Interesting, because the board member is an interesting position. You are the least informed person in the room. The least informed person in the room, but you've only got 4 or $5 million riding on this one and your entire (laughs) reputation. Good luck. Try not to be aggressive. Yeah. Right? Then the psychological piece of that. What does that really mean? We've been focused on meditation, mindfulness, and spirituality because of your podcast, but that's just a part of the larger picture. Right? So- so when I show up, I'm, I'm trying to bring all three of those realms in. So I don't just show up and say, meditate. In fact, most of my clients don't meditate. Mm. And I don't really care if they meditate. 
What I do care is, are you awake to the ways in which you're being complicit in creating the conditions you say you don't want? Are you creating, here's a perfect example. A guy comes to our boot camp last year. First night, he's like, oh, Jerry, what are you reading poetry? What does this have to do with anything? I got a problem. My problem is my VP of sales is a greedy SOB. It's like, okay, that's interesting. All right. Two days later, we're exploring what's known as the shadow qualities, Carl Jungian shadow qualities, the parts of ourselves that are denied, the ways in which we pretend we're not this or that because there are things that are not acceptable. This guy I, and, and they're, 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 the campers are struggling what, to get this concept. And I said, well, look at the things you're ashamed of. And this guy breaks down and he starts crying and he starts talking about um, uh, his uh, addiction to alcohol and how he ended up spending years living under an overpass. And while he was living under the overpass, he swore he would never, ever be without money again. Do you hear the greed? Mm-hmm. And I turned to him and I said, who hired the greedy head of sales? <laughs> right? You don't like the organization because it's violent and greedy? You have to actually welcome in the mess of your own fear, which you tried to push away by making a, a bargain with yourself. Now, is that dharma? Damn right. It's two by four upside your skull, dharma. It's, okay, you're going to sit in the cushion? Great. Let's get real. Let's look at what you're really doing in your day-to-day life, right? You want to lower your blood pressure, be my guest. You want to create neuroplasticity in your brain, fantastic. You want to break your addiction to this or your, God bless. But what's the real source of suffering? Break through the delusion. We use a term in in my company, radical self-inquiry. And you combine that with the Buddhist concept of radical self-acceptance, now you're on to something. Yep. Yeah. I mean, you hard to fix your problems if you can't see them clearly. Uh, so that's Especially the first Especially if, if you're the one who's hiding those problems. Right, right. Exactly. And if you're at the head of an organization, then that pathology spread, metastasizes throughout the whole throughout thing. Throughout the entire organization. Which, which may answer a question that arose for me as I was listening to your podcast, which is there's this big focus on the sort of well-being of CEOs. And I was thinking, for you, Jerry, as a Buddhist, mm. do you ever think to yourself, like, why am I focusing on this very small kind of affluent um, community of people to treat as opposed to like, when, aren't you more worried about the well-being of, I don't know, inner city children? One time I had the uh, tea with Ani Pema children. And I went to her and I said, uh, I was being invited to sit on the, med- the board of directors of a meditation or retreat center. And I said, oh, Ani Pema, I don't want to be on the board of directors. I want to sit in the back of the classroom and all this stuff. And she went, yeah, bullshit. And I said, excuse me? I said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm not like I, the ego grandiose. She goes, that's just your ego. Okay. Your karma is to combine these worlds. When you pull away from your karma, 
you're not going to get happier when you lean into your karma. So to go back to your question for a moment, my karma created this very strange character who has this deep experience in the technology venture-backed startup world and the psychological experience that I had and the spirituality that I have. That's my karma. Now, do I care? Of course I care. I can't read a newspaper without crying. I mean, there are children suffering everywhere. And I grew up in violence. It breaks my heart. And I am proud that I cry. But that's not my karma. Now, I'll tell you tactically, if I can make this particular CEO, if I can help that person feel marginally better, and they go home to her husband, and they are not in aggression there, and then those children are sitting at the table, and mom, the startup CEO, is a lot less stressed, and then they're work environment is a lot less stressful and then they each go home to their children. Isn't that important work? Yeah, I do think so. Which is why in some ways when I asked the question I made reference to the fact that what you had said, Mm -hmm. what we had been discussing just prior to my asking the question may have answered the Mm -hmm. question which is these people are at the head of organizations and their pathologies can spread throughout those organizations and that can have knock-on effects that are profound. And if you can go right to the top and make those people healthier, then actually you're having a big effect in the world. Um, mm. But it was just a question that arose for me as I was listening to your to, to the podcast. And and it says nothing about what you're doing, mm. what, what you may be doing outside of your professional work. Right. So it's just an interesting... Just an interesting idea. But I will say, I will say that um, I've observed the venture world, but I've never never been in the business. I've been an employee of major corporations my whole, I've worked here at ABC News for 17 years, so Mm -hmm. I'm a Disney cast member. Mm -hmm. Um, But now I'm a co-founder with the aforementioned Ben Rubin of this app company. And so the startup world is crazy. It's nuts. You're just always on the cusp of death. Yes. It's raw. It's primal. It's actually a great place to work with these sorts of issues because it's, 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 there's no place to hide. There's, you can't hide. The experience is visceral. And it's, and, it's, and it's literally moment to moment, moment to moment. I mean, I, I did a podcast conversation with Ben prior to uh, 10% Happier, in the previous incarnation, I think it was called Change Collective. Yeah. And we talked about his experience uh, then of his previous company collapsing and his fear of that company collapsing. Mm-hmm. Now, you've been a practitioner and hanging around with, with, with the mindfulness mafia for a while now. Can you see the application of this, <laughs> right? Do you, are you familiar with the notion of a charnel ground practice? Yes, yes. We stare at decomposing bodies. Right. And meditate at, uh, while looking at Right, right. Now, the point of staring at decomposing bodies isn't to experience decompo- decomposition. The point is to go to the place that most scares you, mm-hmm. where your experience of life is so visceral and raw. Well, being the CEO of a startup is like a charnel ground practice. 
So I love hanging out with entrepreneurs because they're right on that edge. As a guy who likes bowing to the mess and other people, you got a lot to bow to. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I think our listeners will have gotten just a brief sense of uh, of your wizardry mm. in this conversation. If people want to learn more about you, how and where can they do so? The best uh, site is reboot.io, not .com, .io, which of course stands for Indian Ocean, but it's kind of cool. Reboot.io. Um, we've got a podcast. We also do these things called uh, five-day uh, reboots, which are free, and they're guided practices. They're not meditation practices, but, hey, read this. Hey, listen to this. Hey, do this. We do uh, peer support groups. We do my, – my goal is to make the conversation about our relationship, our existential relationship with work accessible to anybody. Um, so that's what – what uh, that's what they can do is go to that site and uh, check us out. Sometimes I use an expression when we get a particularly good guest, which is that they came to play. Mm. Like you really, you just went right for the the raw stuff. So uh, mm. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. I mean, funny little story. I was doing a talk in Denver a few months ago with my friend Brad Feld, and I'm standing online getting iced tea, and this guy comes up to me, and he, you know, we're all both online, and he's like, you know. Online and I said I'm wearing my name tag right and I said you know I think this guy Jerry Cohen is full of shit and he looks at me and he looks at the name and he starts laughing he goes wait you're just like you are on the podcast and I said that's it the inner and the outer exactly match <laughs> so well great to see your inner and outer thank you sir Appreciate thank you. It. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuel, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. 
All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.